I'm pretty sure that most of us have had, but I know for sure that I have had revenge fantasies at some point or another, which is possibly why I enjoy Stephen King's Carrie so much. I've seen it in its many different forms and remakes, and the thing that always strikes me about it is that Carrie gets a bit of a bad rap. It's fantasy more than horror to me. No matter what a person's position seems to be in the whole horrific school social structure, everyone has felt picked on to varying degrees, and I would lay odds that if you gave just 1% of all, let's say, high school freshmen telekinetic powers, that every single spring you'd find yourself with a graduating class of about four. Carrie just went out of control. If she'd been more judicious and it hadn't taken place in a school, it wouldn't have even been a horror movie. It would have been a Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson movie. Speaking of Chuck and Charles, here's the movie I wish they would make. It's a school reunion. There are tables set up and a bar, and at first the scene is really confusing because all you see is people's legs in the lower half of their bodies and all the conversation is muffled and distorted. It sounds like wah, 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 wah. But then the camera shifts focus, and the sound is adjusted, and you see a large group of adults mingling and moving around and talking to each other. And the first thing you notice about them is that they all seem to have the exact same nose. Well, that's not so unusual. Maybe it's Beverly Hills, you think. But when you look more closely, some of the people start to look and behave in a way that is strangely familiar. Over there under the huge banner that reads happiness is dot 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 a school reunion is a woman who looks really bitchy but kind of hot like Posh Spice used to look wearing a really inappropriately short inappropriately young light blue dress like Baby Spice used to wear. That's Lucy Van Pelt drinking Cosmopolitans and occasionally signing autographs somewhat disdainfully on cocktail napkins. Phrases like Get your head out of your ass before it's too late, Dr. Lucy. Lucy is not a doctor per se, but she has a fantastically successful nationally syndicated radio show where people call her up with their personal problems, and she dispenses psychiatric advice in a ruthless, scathing manner, which has earned her a fortune. She's at the reunion alone. Husband number five could not come along as he failed to notice Lucy had gotten her hair subtly highlighted. He is currently at home, fulfilling his punishment duties, scrubbing the bathroom floor with a cotton swab while wearing a pretty, pretty French maid outfit. I just love your show, Dr. Lucy. I never miss a single one. Gosh, Lucy's admirers at the party, smiling at her tentatively, but she doesn't even bother to wither them with her trademark glare. Her focus is across the room at the well-dressed guy also drinking a Cosmopolitan and talking intimately to the piano player. It's Schroeder. The well-dressed guy, that is. He looks very much like a young Niles Crane from Frasier. He teaches classical music theory at the local university, is a frequent guest conductor at the city orchestra, and lives with his boyfriend Heinrich. Speaking of alternative lifestyles, here, through the door, comes Peppermint Patty, who since graduation has just gone by Pat. She's in a bad mood because the all-women's softball team she coaches, the Peppermint Pearl Divers, just lost the Cine Pennant earlier that evening to their arch-rivals, the Rhodesian Melissa Etheridge-Backs. She's been tossing back beers for several hours prior to the reunion and begun raving about how the reason that they lost is because their shortstop is not in fact human, but possibly a dog, a male dog. 
Relax, sir, says her partner, steering her deftly toward the catering table. Look, they have Dolly Madison Zinger as your favorite. The partner is, of course, Marcy, who looks not unlike Janine Garofalo with thick, black-framed glasses. The two of them finally came out of the closet together, their sophomore year at Vassar, though unfortunately were both kicked out shortly thereafter, when it was discovered that Marcy had been writing all Pat's term papers for her and also giving her the answers on the in-class true-false tests. Making the rounds and parting the crowd as he comes is Pigpen, dressed in layers of flannel, long underwear, and an unwashed funk coming off him like the exhaust vent outside a stadium Quicksilver concert. Pigpen had a brush with fame for a few years in the early 90s when he fronted a grunge band called P-Squared. He peaked with a worldwide tour sponsored by Eureka Vacuum Cleaners, then got a nasty heroin habit and went into a steady decline, ranting and raving to anyone who would listen about how Smashing Pumpkins screwed him out of songwriting royalties and the major record labels didn't support the integrity of the artist. Even though he attended a different school, Franklin is there at the party, telling everyone who will listen long stories about his grandfather, interspersed with anecdotes about how he got kicked off one of the seasons of the real world. He's primarily talking to Rerun, who's wearing overalls and arrived at the reunion on the back of his mom's bicycle. Rerun has spent most of the evening smiling wearily at people and saying, no, I'm not Linus. People get us confused all the time. He's my older brother. He's over there. And sure enough, over there is Linus Van Pelt, a gaunt and spooky figure, with just a few unsettlingly long hairs combed up and over an otherwise completely bald head. He's got a blanket draped over one arm and is clutching a Bible with the other and has a distinctly maniacal gleam in his eyes. Linus has been stopping people at the party all night, asking them if they'd like to hear the truth and if they were aware that the day of reckoning was close at hand. Flanking him, also with a blanket, Bible, and maniacal gleam, is Sally, one of Linus's 14 wives. She basically repeats everything Linus says while nodding and adding phrases like, and so it is, and so shall it be. Everyone at the reunion is a little bit nervous that Linus is there, as he's spent the past several years as the self-appointed divine charismatic leader of a cult in Nevada. The rumor is that he and his followers believe that one day, They'll all be transported via a spaceship shaped like a huge pumpkin to a distant planet while the earth is engulfed in fire and brimstone. And when that day comes, all the followers must eat the special Dolly Madison singers and cover themselves with their blankets and wait. All his followers refer to Linus as the Sweet Babu. Everybody at the party is trying to be cool about it, but you'd better believe pulses start racing when it looks like Linus might be headed towards the table of cupcakes and Twinkie knockoffs. But for the most part, everyone's having a grand evening, throwing back their heads and laughing until only their mouths and the tip of their identical noses show, tossing back fistfuls of Chex Mix, good times. Then, all of a sudden, the entrance door shuts. It's not a loud sound, it's not a slam, but for some reason, everybody in the room is instantly aware of it and shifts their focus over to the far side of the auditorium. Standing there, all alone, is a figure covered in a white sheet. It appears to be some kind of ghost, except that instead of two gaping holes where the eyes should be, there are about 15 scattered randomly all over. Everyone is silent, staring, and waiting.
a strange sensation hangs over the room. The ghostly figure slowly removes the cape, and there he stands. His shirt is yellow, with a solitary, jagged, thick stripe of black. His head is disproportionately huge. His expression says, It's payback time. Hey, says the figure in front of the closed door, dropping his sheet on the floor. What's up, you fucking blockheads? No one can speak at first. It's that kid. It's that round-headed kid. What was his name? The weird kid with the dog. Chris or Carl something, goes the whisper around the room. Charlie Brown, says Dr. Lucy finally from the far side of the room, the only one who doesn't seem afraid. She takes a few steps forward. Charlie Brown, she announces boldly. If you got an invitation to the reunion, it was a mistake. There were two lists, Charlie Brown. One list of people to invite and one not to invite. You must have been put on the wrong list. Charlie Brown turns to her. His eyes are cold, steely, empty. For the first time, everyone notices that he has with him a huge sack like you'd use to haul equipment around in. He's dragging it behind him. Guess what I have in this bag? He asks the room at large. No one answers. I'll tell you, says Charlie Brown. He dumps the contents onto the floor with a prolonged rumbling crash. Right here, he says flatly. I have every single rock I've ever gotten, every single Halloween, since 1966. You may notice some writing on each of them. Those are names. Those names are all of you. Trick-or-treat motherfuckers. Why so quiet? You're not scared, are you? We are. We are sore afraid, shouts Linus before he can stop himself. Charlie Brown throws his head back and laughs, only his mouth and the tip of his nose showing. Well, you should be, he says, smiling coldly, for this night is the night of the apocalypse. A-P-O-C-O-L-Y-P-S-E. Apocalypse. C-A-L, Charles, shouts Marcy before she can even stop herself. Charlie Brown's huge head whips around towards her. What? He hisses. Pat throws her arm in front of Marcy protectively. There's, there's only one O in Apocalypse, stammers Marcy, her glasses fogging in terror. It's A-P-O-C-A-L-Y-P-S-E, Apocalypse. An unfathomable look passes over Charlie Brown's face. I see, he whispers menacingly, finally. I see. I see. I before he accept after C. <laughs> For God's sake, mutters Franklin, someone go find a red-haired chick. That's the only thing that can distract him. If I only had a football, hisses Lucy, I could make him fall right on his stupid head. The day has come. The day has come. God's pumpkin spaceship will soon be upon us. Have the blankets at the ready, Linus tells Sally with craged urgency. I should have known that guy would snap one day, whispers Schroeder, clinging to the piano player. Did you know he was convinced his beagle was a World War I veteran? And that was back in grade school. Don't worry, says Pat to Marcy. I remember when I used to play ball with Chuck. 
He won't hit anybody with those rocks. He couldn't pitch his way out of a paper bag. Charlie Brown, as if with heightened, a word which violates the whole I-before-E rule, by the way, senses, hears Pat and turns to her, still with the same evil grin. Maybe so, maybe not, he says, his smirk seeming to stretch in a wavy line across the whole lower half of his face. But it doesn't matter, because look what I have here. And from within the same sack as the rocks, he pulls what appears to be a huge folded-up tent. He unfolds it slowly to reveal that it is, in fact, a giant kite, jet black, the kind with those creepy yellow bat eyes painted on the end of it, and a long tail studded all over with individual razor blades. Behold the death kite, says Charlie triumphantly. Lo, it shall sail up to the center of the ceiling, whereupon it shall release the poison gas, then spin around in a frenzy, its savage tail of doom slicing and slicing into the flesh of all those who, but suddenly, before Charlie Brown can say another word, a great crash comes from one side of the room. As the enormous plate glass bay window splinters to pieces, and the massive reaching branches of a tree come through and into the room, like in Poltergeist, which is also not I before E. When the tree reaches in for the little boy, it's the kite-eating tree, and it grabs the death kite and crunches it into shreds and powder as it recedes back into the night, as mysteriously as it came. Rats! shouts Charlie Brown, and right on cue, thousands and thousands of rats come swarming out of the vents and grates in the room and begin attacking party guests at Charlie's command, just like in Ben, which I didn't see, but I'm pretty sure something like that happened in it. The guests barely have time to let the screams of horror leave their throats, though, before the entire ceiling caves in directly over Charlie Brown's head and a round, massive figure falls through, pushing the debris ahead of it and lands with a mighty thud on top of the would-be destroyer. It's the great pumpkin! Hallelujah, praise be! The great pumpkin has come at last and brought with him his righteous vengeance! That's why they call it squash! shouts Linus hopping up onto the bar in jubilation. The dust clears, and of course, it's not the Great Pumpkin. It is an unbelievably huge helium Snoopy balloon, blown off course from the Macy's Thanksgiving parade, deflating with a slow and steady hiss. Everyone is stunned, and then they cheer, and then what can they do but dance? And all seems well that has ended well, except, of course, that Charlie Brown's body is never found. Good grief. (laughs) And that's the end.